0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, friends, I am delighted to have the opportunity to share with you my analysis about the mid-term and long-term growth perspective in China uh, at the beginning of the year. Well, If we want to look in the future, I think it's better to have a little review of the history. China started the economic transition from a planned economy to a market economy in 1979. At that time, China was one of the poorest countries in the whole world because its per capita GDP was less than one-third of the average in the poorest continent sub-Saharan Africa countries. And uh, in the past 36 years, the average annual growth rate in China was 9.8%. As a result, China overtook Japan in 2009, became the second largest economy in the world. And according to IMF and the World Bank, last year, measured by purchasing power parity, China overtook U.S., became the largest economy in the whole world. And uh, during this period of time, China opened its economy to the world, and uh, so the trade growth rate on the average was 16.3% per year, and uh, China became the largest exporter in the world in 2010, and uh, became the largest trading country in the world in 2013. And during this period of time, 680 million people got out of poverty. And China also contributed to the recovery of East Asian financial crisis when they were hit, and also 2008 global crisis. But with this kind of miraculous performance, in the last few years, there's a lot of speculation about the coming collapse of the Chinese economy. And the main reason was that the economic growth rate in China started to decelerate in the first quarter of 2010, and now it has been lasted for more than 19 quarters. And uh, in the third quarters of last year, the growth rate was 7.3%, and uh, the downward pressure is still very heavy. So under this kind of situation, people think it was the first time that China experienced such a long term, long period of deceleration in its growth rate, and people thought this kind of deceleration was caused by the structural internal problem. And those problems are very hard to deal with. And so people expect, likely, the growth rate, you know, the, the, the growth rate continue to decelerate or not. Well. Certainly, China is a transition economy. There must be a lot of structural problem in China. But I'd like to argue the main reason for the deceleration was not because of the internal structural problem. I would like to argue the main reason for the deceleration was external and cyclical. Because we can see some other economies in a sense state of development, like Brazil, like India, they also experienced similar pattern of deceleration. And that deceleration was even sharper than the deceleration in China. Not only the emerging market economy like China, Brazil, India. You can look into some other high-income, high-performing economies like Singapore, like Korea. They also experienced similar deceleration in the same period of time, and that deceleration was also even sharper than china so there must be some common external problems that all this economy face. and uh, and uh, it's also not hard to understand because if we want to understand the economic growth rate in any country we know that there are three drivers of growth and the first driver is export the second driver is investment The third driver is consumption. And we know that for export, after the 2008 global crisis, the high-income countries in the U.S., in Eurozone, in Japan, have not fully recovered yet. And under this kind of situation, the export to the high-income country decelerated. And that was one main reason for the deceleration in the export-oriented economies in the world. And the second one, investment. We know that every country in the world adopted certain kind of fiscal stimulus to support investment in 2008 when the economies were hit by the crisis. And those projects, after four, five, six years, are either completed or close to complete. So another kind of situation, unless you have further investment, otherwise, the investment growth rate will also decelerated. That was the second reason. And the third one is consumption. Luckily, the consumption in China is still very strong. Like in 2013, the growth rate of consumption was 9%. And in 2014, I expect the growth rate of consumption will be at least 8%, among the highest in the whole world and that was the reason why China was able to maintain about seven percent growth rate. Then, let's look into the future. Is China going to decelerate and causing the collapse of the economy as many doomsday shares predict? Or China will maintain its growth rate between seven and eight percent growth? Well, certainly it depends. First, it depends on whether the high income country are going to risk recovery strongly or not? And the second one certainly is domestic, you know, source of demand whether they can continue to boost. And for the external situation, although we have some, you know, speculation about the strong recovery in the U.S., certainly I hope it will be stabilized. It will continue to grow dynamically, but I think there's still some uncertainty there because we know that unemployment rate in the real term in the US is still very high. And in the Eurozone and in Japan, they continue to face the slowdown of their economy. So I think that the external demand is not reliable for China and other developing countries. And so fundamentally, if you want to make a judgment about the growth potential in China, most important thing is domestic sources. For the domestic demand, there are two sources. One is investment, and the other one is consumption. In the past few years, many people said China need to switch its investment-like growth to consumption-like growth. And they attribute to the investment-like growth as the main reason for the slowdown in the Chinese economy. For that, I would like to disagree. Certainly, consumption is very important. It's our goal of economic development. However, if we want to have a consumption growth, we need to have income growth. And how to derive, how to get the income growth? We need to improve the labor productivities. And the only way for improving labor productivities, one is technological innovation, the other one is industrial upgrading, the third one is to improve infrastructure in order to reduce transaction cost. And all three rely on Investment, without investment, you cannot increase labor productivities. Without improved labor productivities, you want to increase consumption, and then it will be an open invitation for crisis in China for a few years to come in the future. If you look into those countries which face economic or financial crisis, consumption is always the reason. So I think that China needs to start in our need to continue to use its investment growth. If we have good investment in right area, improve labor activities, income will increase. When income increase, then consumption will increase. And that is the reason why, although many people criticize the investment that grows in China, but if you look into the reality, consumption in China has been always very robust in the past 36 years. Only average is about 8% per year of consumption growth. Can you find that kind of situation in the whole world? And even in the last two or three years, the consumption growth rate in China was about 8%, 9%. So I think that investment growth was still the key for maintaining the stability of the growth in China. Certainly, if you want to use investment as a driver for growth and to make this kind of growth sustainable, you need to have good investment opportunity, which give you high economic return and social return. And luckily, China still have plenty of opportunity for those kind of good investment opportunity. Because as a middle income country, China can always to have industrial upgrading. Even we have many excess capacity in certain existing sectors, which you have scope for, for the industrial upgrading. Secondly, infrastructure investment. China is a middle income country. We still can have a good scope for further improvement in infrastructure, especially in the inner city infrastructure like subways and so on. And the third one, environmental protection. The fourth one, urbanization. Currently, the urbanization rate in China is only about 53%. And for high income countries, in general, the urbanization is close to 80%. So there's a huge free Huge scope for further urbanization. And all these kinds of areas will be good investment in terms of economic return and a social return. And this is one area I like to point out. This is one area a developing country differs from a high income country. A high income country, when they have a slowdown in the economy, it's very hard to find good investment opportunities. But as a middle income country, we still have plenty room for further investment to improve the labor activities. But if you have good investment opportunity, you also need to have good resources, right? And for that, China is also in a very good position. Because government debt, accumulated debt as a percentage of GDP is less than 50% among the lowest in the whole world. So the government in China can adopt some kind of expansionary fiscal policy to stimulate investment. Not only the government is in good position, saving rate in China is close to 50% of GDP, among the highest in the whole world. So that means the government can use its fiscal expansion to leverage private sector investment. If you want to make investment, certainly you need to import raw material, equipment, technology. You need to have foreign reserves. China has four trillion dollars of foreign reserve. So China is not limited by the investment resources as long as we want to make investment. And I'd like to mention this is something China differs from other developing countries. Other developing countries should also have good investment opportunities, but they may be constrained by the government fiscal position or law saving or, you know, limited foreign reserves. China are not limited by that. So with this kind of understanding, I am confident China will be able to maintain between 7% to 7.5% growth rate in the coming years. Even the external economic uh, 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 situation is not so robust as pre-crisis in 2008. China will be able to maintain between 7 to 7.5% growth rate. And it's not only in the coming one or two years. I think there's an opportunity for China to maintain this kind of robust growth rate continuously for another 10 or 15 years. The main reason is that China is a developing country, and we know that for developing country, for developed country, if you want to have a sustained growth for a long period of time, you need to have a continuous stream in technological innovation and also in industrial upgrading. That is the only way to have a sustained long-term growth. In high-income countries we know, like in the US, in Europe, in Japan, their industry, their technology are on the global frontiers. So if if they want to have technological innovation, industrial upgrading, they need to invent those kind of technology or industries. But China is still a middle-income country. There's something called advantage of backwardness. In the technological innovation and the industrial upgrading, China can still benefit from the existing technology and industry in the world as a source of its technological innovation and the industrial upgrading. And that was the reason why China was able to maintain 9.8% growth rate continuously for 35 years. But in the future, how large that the advantage of one is still there? I think that the best way to measure that is the per capita income level. Because per capita GDP is a reflection of the average technology and average value added of the industry in the country. And by that measure, in 2008, that is the newest data I can have, China's per capita income, per capita GDP, was 21%. Of the US per capita GDP. And it was similar to Japan in 1951, Singapore in 1967, Taiwan, China in 1975, Korea in 1977. And all these four East Asian economies, based on the same level and a gap with the US, they maintain 20 years of 7.6% to 9.2% for 20 years. If they can realize this kind of growth rate, on the same mechanism for 20 years between 7.6 to 9.2%, I think China has a potential growth rate of 8% per year for 20 years starting from 2008. If you realize China's per capita income by the time of 2030 Will be 50 percent of the U.S. per capita income, measured by purchasing power parity. Population size in China is four times of the U.S. So, major by purchasing power parity, the economic size in China can be twice as large as the U.S. Certainly, if you want to look into the measurement by market exchange rate, that depends on how rapid the currency appreciation in China. But most likely, the economic size of the China will be at least 1.5%, at 1.5 times of the U.S. economic size. So that's likely scenario if the growth potential is realized. But certainly, it's only a potential. If China wants to tap into the potential, China needs to you know, maintain the social political stability to make people happy. But currently, people in China are not very happy due to the income disparity, due to the corruption, due to the pollution, due to the relation-based transaction instead of the rule-based transaction. And the first two, income disparity and uh, corruption, makes low-income and middle-income people unhappy. Pollution makes everyone unhappy, and especially for the high-income people. And uh, this kind of relation-based transaction instead of rule-based transaction make foreigners very unhappy. So with this kind of problem, since everyone is unhappy about China. And so that's the reason why, even though the economic performance is so good in the past 35 years, but many people always predict Chinese economy is going to collapse because of this kind of issues. But how come? that with such a you know, remarkable economic performance that China had those kind of problems. I think it related to the way China engaged its transition from a planned economy to a market economy. As you know that China did not adopt it, the Washington Consensus structure, try to remove all the distortions simultaneously when China started the transition from a planned economy to a market economy. China adopted a pragmatic, gradual, dual-check approach. On the one hand, continue to provide certain kind of protection and subsidies to the old priority, heavy industry capital intensive sectors. On the other hand, liberalize the entry to the new sectors which are consistent with China's comparative advantages. This approach allows China to maintain stability and achieve dynamic economic growth during its transition from a planned economy to a market economy and avoid the collapse as we observe in former civilian Eastern European country. But this approach, China also, you know, pays some cost because the need to protect those kind of old sectors rely on all kind of distortion in the factor price in the market. And those kind of distortions create the income disparity because the sectors which receive the subsidies are general, large-scale, capital-intensive firms, either owned by the state or now by quite a number of private you know, owners. And they receive subsidies. They are richers. Who subsidize them? People put the money into the system and they services from, let's say, financial sector and so on. And of course, income disparity. But it also created rent because subsidies means it's a rent, and you are going to have rent seeking. Rent seeking is an economic term. It's another term people understand is bribing and corruption. And, uh, and uh, so and uh, because of distortions, the resources need to be allocated by the government. And uh, so you need to get a good relationship with the government in order to get access to those kind of. Preferential treatment. And that's so how the Chinese economy was a relation based instead of rule based. And why why pollution is such a big issue? Well, it really to the stage of development. Because China is still on the manufacturing stage of development. We know that in an agrarian economy, in general, environment is very good. Then you move to the manufacturing stage, the energy intensity and emission intensity are both much higher, so you are more pr- polluted. But when you move to the service oriented economy, then you know, the energy and the emission will be reduced and you can have a good environment. And as so all the country started from agrarian to high income, they in into a stage of very polluted you know, a, a, a stage, just like in, in, in New York, and in in, in in continental Europe, or in Japan, in Korea, and so on, they all enter into that stage. And China now are still in that stage. So that's one reason why China is so polluted. But it also related to the regulation, environmental regulation, and also technology. So China can do better if we have a better regulation, if we adopt a greener technology, but I think that this kind of problem cannot be totally avoided. And so, with the understanding of the problems and the potential, what are the, the policy of the Chinese government? And as you know, in the third plan, in 2013, the government, promote to, you know, the government promised to deepening the reform to remove all the remaining distortions. And in the fourth plan last year, the government you know, promoted this kind of rule-by-rule and, and as a rule of rule, so those programs, the main purpose were to remove the remaining distortion in the Chinese economy in order to tap into the potential of the growth in China. And as an implication, what? I think that China is in the right track to removing, eliminating the remaining distortion in order to have a well-functioning market economy so China can tap into the growth potential. And with this kind of government policy, I think the business operation will have a level playing field. Between the national enterprises and the foreign enterprises. Between the large enterprises and the medium-sized, small-sized enterprises. And also, you know, in the past, certain group of the firms in China, including foreign firms and large corporations in China, received supernational treatment. Or some firms received subnational treatment. And I think those kind of days, those days will, gone, will be gone. Because China is going to move to new merit based instead of relation. In the past, if you want to have good business in China, you, know, you, you should hire a certain prisoners people with good relation with the government. In the future, if you want to have a good business in China, you need to hire people who are competent. And China will also have to continue to upgrade the industries in order to further increase income, and China will move to technologically intensive industries. And China will also rely on green industries in order to cope with the environmental issue. And China will move closer to, closer to the global technological frontiers. So China will have to rely more and more on indigenous R&D. And to make that possible, China will have a much better protection of IPR. And secondly, as Yao Yang also mentioned, last year, China already become the next exporters of capital. And I think this kind of trade will continue that China will become the major source of the capital in the world. And there are several reasons for that. The first one, certainly, China is a resources in a, a, a skills economy, China need to get more resources, China will make investment in those areas and uh, China has a competitive advantages in infrastructure and uh, we know that many developing countries and even high income countries their infrastructure is bottleneck for their growth and China will use its competitive advantage and funding to support infrastructure investment in the developing country or even in the high income country. And also China will, you know, continue to use merge and acquisition to get access to higher technology from advanced country. And uh, and China also certainly will try to enter into the domestic market of the developing country and even high income country by set up operation in those areas. And the last one, and it has a very important implication in that, China will started to relocate its labor-intensive processing industries to other low-income countries. Like Japan did in the 1960s, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore did in the 1980s, and China was started to do that because of rising wages in China. But here I'd like to mention the scale of the relocation is so much different. In 1960, Japan manufacturing sectors employed altogether 9.7 million workers. In 1980s, Korea employed about 2.3 million, Taiwan about 1.5 million, Hong Kong about 1 million, Singapore about half a million. By this time, in the labor intensive industries alone, China employed 85 million. So China, the relocation will allow almost all the developing countries in the world to start an industrialization age and to achieve similar dynamic economic growth as China in the past 30 years if they capture those kind of opportunities. And the third one, the last implication, with rising of the income, China will continue to consume more and more luxury goods, high-end goods. And currently, China already, you know, contribute to about a quarter of the global market in car. And this will continue to be sold, and it will even become biggest. And currently, China already consumes about one-third of the luxury of goods in the world. And uh, with the rising middle-income country, certainly, China will become even a bigger market for that. So, with this, I hope that you share my excitement About
0: China. Uh We all know that Justin has been uh, one of the most uh, optimistic uh, economists in China about China's economic growth prospects. uh, And today I think uh, he's particularly optimistic uh, amid this uh, downturn in China. Uh, I bet uh, you have uh, many questions. And uh, because of time constraints, let's uh, entertain one or two questions from the audience.
1: Well, be- before you give the floor to the audience, he said I was too optimistic, right? <laughs> but I'd like to say I have been accused being too optimistic for the past 20 years. <laughs> but, you know, I'd like to say, but the fact it proved, the actual performance proved, I was too conservative. I published a book called China Medical in 1994. In that book, I predict China would overtake US in economic size, major by purchasing power parity in 2015. But as I mentioned, actually, China achieved that in 2014. So I was a little bit too conservative in that book. <laughs> but in that book, in the past 20 years, at least especially in the first 10 years, everyone thought I was too optimistic. So I have a very good trick, good uh, a good trick, Lakers. Just like you know, Yang said, if listen to, Hai Zhou last year, you will make millions of dollars. But in the past twenty years, if you listen to me, you may you may become billionaire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, uh, I see a hand over there. Good morning. I'm George Hogue from State Street. It's a question for Justin Lin. Slowly but surely, the RMB is becoming internationalized. Most recently, we had the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect, which makes it easier for people to buy uh, Chinese A-shares. I'm wondering if you could just say a few words about your view of the role of RMB internationalization and capital account liberalization in the rebalancing of the Chinese economy and how this should be phased in.
1: Well that certainly is very important for China. Although as a middle income country, China has a scope, uh the advantage of backwardness in many sectors. But at the same time, as a middle income country, China, certain sectors already become the global leaders, especially in the household appliances and also in some new technology, which require, you know, many human capital, and also the cycle of the innovation is very short. In those two areas, China need to do the indigenous R&D by China itself in order to maintain its position as a global leaders or to compete on the global frontiers. And for this, certainly, we need open our mind to you know, utilize the talent in the whole world, and also I think the internationalization of the R&D will be a trend, as well as acquisition, merchant and acquisition, is a source for technological changes in China, and a good one implication is that certainly China will move you know closer to a better protection of the intellectual property right.
2: Uh, Bill Jones from Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, Justin, I'd like to ask you uh, about the last point that you talked about, the, industri- the attempt to bring industrialization to many of the developing sector countries, which China has been in the forefront of, especially under the caption of the one road, one belt, the new Silk Road, which is viewed often enough from the U.S. side as a zero-sum game, that as China is moving forward, helping these countries in a tremendous project of development that has created optimism in all over the world, Latin America, Africa. But President Xi, at his press conference with President Obama, extended an invitation to the United States to participate in this program. And given the problem with infrastructure here in the United States, I think it would be very important, if the United States would be involved in this, could cooperate to create the type of infrastructural development that the world so long needs. I wonder if you could make some comments on that. Are you optimistic about bringing the U.S. into this and uh, working together with them on this very important project?
1: Well, I think uh, based on economic analysis, certainly if U.S. can participate, other high-income countries can participate, and to capture that opportunity for the low-income country, it will be good for the low-income country and high-income country. It's a win-win. Because for the low income countries, industrialization through the labor intensive industry is the only way for them to move from agrarian economy and uh, entering into you know, manufacturing sectors and then they can climb the industrial leaders and gradually make become middle income and high income country. All the country that move away from agrarian to middle income to high income country, that is the only route except for a few oil-producing countries. So it's a good opportunity for the developing country. At the same time, we know that at the current situation for high-income country, what we need for high-income country is growth in other parts of the world in order to create export market and allow them to have a room for, sp- for structural reform domestically. You know? and, and so if we can have a mechanism to help other developing countries grow dynamically, their market will become larger high income countries will increase their export with export increase it will have the same uh, uh, implication as devaluation in the past to create a space for structural reform and, and so I think that in a hope through this in our know, conference and so on, we can spread this message to the politician in the u s in the other high income countries so we can join hands to make we have a prosperous common prosperity for all the countries in the world, not only in a high-income country, but also in a developing country.
0: Okay, I see many hands, but uh, for the sake of time, probably we have to stop here. It's us uh, thank uh, Professor Lin for his wonderful speech.